Welcome to The Endangered. I'm your host, Finney, and today we are going to be talking about sharks near and around Long Island. Our main focus is the sand tiger shark, but my research has expanded to the entire shark population of Long Island. Our first guest is Dr. Toby Curtis. So, uh, Toby, can you give a bi- uh, bio, please? Sure. Um, uh, my name is Dr. Toby Curtis. I, I currently work for the National Marine Fisheries Service in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Um, I'm a shark researcher. Um, I'm a fishery management specialist, my actual title. So I do, I do a mix of shark science and shark policy. Um, so basically the policy is a lot, of, a lot of the paperwork that goes into conserving sharks up and down the coast. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts. I actually went to college um, on Long Island at Southampton College um, out in Southampton. So when, before it uh, became Stony Brook. And so I, I lived down there for a number of years. And um, I got my master's degree at the University of Florida. I actually worked um, down in Florida for, for a number of years, working in the sh- um, as an observer in the shark fishery down there. And I worked on the international shark attack file. And, and then I came back to Massachusetts and I did my PhD at UMass Dartmouth with Dr. Greg Skomel, who you may have seen on Shark Week and stuff. He's, um, he's a friend and one of my um, advisors for my PhD work. And I studied basking sharks um, off the Cape for, um, for my PhD work. Uh, I've been working for NOAA for you know, National Marine Fisheries for uh, almost 16 years, which is crazy. Um, and so I've been based in Gloucester all that time. And, um, and so now I kind of do research in a few different places. Um, but most of my field work and most of the fun stuff is down on Long Island where we've been tagging and, and tracking juvenile white sharks there off the south shore of Long Island. And so that's been a lot of fun. And working with some old college friends from, from Long Island University um, and uh, being affiliated with the South Fork Natural History Museum has just been, it's been great. Um, so I, I understand that's how we kind of made the connection with, with uh, Mel Mead, yeah. like, I used to work for Mel when I was a student at LIU. So it's awesome that we still get to sort of connect through the museum. Great. Thank you. Why did you become a shark scientist? That's a great question. Uh, basically, I grew up on this little pond in central Massachusetts, and I grew up fishing, like, for bluegill and, and largemouth bass. I love fishing. Um, all summer long, I'd be swimming. Um, or fishing, or I got my uh, grandfather gave me a mask and snorkel when I was about four years old, and so I put on a mask when I was pretty little and loved swimming around chasing the fish underwater. Cool. And so, and then maybe around the time I was in middle school, I, I was like in the library, and I used to check out a lot of the books about fish and stuff like that. I was just always always fascinated by fish. I found out that you could actually get a job where they paid you to go fishing. <laughs> And uh, it was called being a marine biologist. And I was like, that sounds awesome. And so it was pretty much since middle school. I, I knew I kind of wanted to be a marine biologist. And, um, and of course, like, sharks are kind of the ultimate, right? I was When I was a kid, I was into dinosaurs. And I loved monster movies like Godzilla, King Kong, and stuff like that. And um, I, I just, you know, those sharks are kind of like, you know, they're like real, real uh Real monsters. You, you know, they're, they're portrayed as monsters, but they're basically real monsters, real dinosaurs even. They've yeah. been around a long time. Um, so sharks are always fascinating. And um, so I just stuck with that. I was, I knew from, from the get-go, um, I was interested in sharks. Uh, the Jaws movies uh, later on, even though they're kind of scary, they definitely 
influenced me. I thought, I just thought just seeing the big shark was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it didn't scare me out of the water at all. Like it did for a lot of people, but the Jaws movies actually, you know, had an influence my interest in sharks too. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so when I got, the, when I started looking around at colleges, I was looking at, you know, marine biology programs and, and Long Island university really stuck out to me because it was right on the ocean. Um, you know, it's beautiful there on the East end and it was just a great place. And they had boats across the street from campus. And so I thought that sounds perfect. And so I, it was, it was the right choice for sure. Um, made a lot of, I learned a lot, a lot of lifelong friends and get to spend, you know, four or five years down there, um, going out in boats almost, you know, every couple of days out on Shinnecock Bay, out on the ocean in Peconic Bay and just getting to know that area really well. It was, it was a blast. And, and so, um, so it's really cool to be doing shark research down there, you know, where I went to college all those years ago to be down there doing real shark research and stuff now is really, it's really cool. So, but basically uh, I've wanted to be, I've wanted, I've been fascinated by sharks my whole life and I've been lucky enough to sort of stick with it and, um, and follow through on, on what I was interested in my, my whole life. Great. Thank you. Okay. Here's my next question. Why is the sand tiger shark threatened? It's a very good question. So technically the sand tiger shark in the United States, it's not threatened or endangered under the Endangered Species Act, but I believe it is, is considered threatened by the IUCN red list, which is kind of an international assessment. Mm -hmm. So just a t there's a little technical difference between, you know, what we consider as far as the government goes, what we consider endangered or threatened. So technically, sand tiger um, under the Endangered Species Act isn't threatened or endangered, which is a good thing. They are uh, overfished, and there's been evidence that their populations declined, mostly from commercial um, shark fishing during the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and so there's a period of time where there was shark fishing up and down the coast, and there were no regulations. Yeah. Basically, there was no, there's, we, we didn't, um, we didn't have any regulations to limit the number of sharks that be caught, that could be caught, or which species could be caught, and so that caused the populations to drop for a lot of species, including sand tigers. And part of the problem with sand tiger sharks is they only have a couple pups at a time. Yeah. Um, and they only give, they only give birth every two or three years, I think. And so, because they have so few pups, and because they take so long before they mature. It takes a really, really long time. So they've been protected. Now, sand tigers have been protected, I think, since 1997. And you can, so if you catch them by accident, you have to release them. And so they're, they're, we call them a prohibited species. Now, they're just like just like white sharks, um, you know, basking sharks, dusky sharks. Uh, they're, they're protected, and you can't keep them. And so, but we, the, basically, <laughs> they were protected too late. You know, the population yeah. are, had already declined a lot by the time those regulations went into place. So there's, I think they're starting to come back now. Uh, the population's slowly rebuilding, but it could take 50 to 100 years even before the population is built back up to what it used to be. Wow. And because, sand, and because sand tigers only have those couple pups at a time, it takes them a lot longer than some of the other sharks that have, you know, they can have a dozen or two dozen pups um, every time they give birth. Yeah. So sand tigers are, re are really vulnerable just because of the... Um, because of their re their reproductive rate, they just don't put out a lot of pups. Mm. Are they ever poached? Because I read in think like Southern Asia, they use it. They use like they have like shark shark uh, soups or something like that. Are are they poached for that reason? In, yeah, in some some other countries, I think there's occasionally some um, 
um, you know, some illegal catches in the United States even. But on the coast, or, or people catch them, and they don't know what they are, so they might kill them. Mm. Um, there's been, um, and there's also sometimes people fish for them off the beach. I've heard on Long Island and also down in New Jersey and Delaware, you can fish for sand tiger sharks right off the beach. Um, sometimes if they swallow the hook, mm-hmm. you know, it could be bad for them. And so sometimes even if they're released, they can die after they're released. Um, and so it's, it's, so it's not like somebody's trying to keep them and sell them or anything, but they could yeah. die from just have, having been caught on a hook. Um, in other countries, sharks aren't as protected as they are in the United States. So sand tigers in the U.S. are actually pretty lucky that we have really good regulations and good enforcement. And uh, I think they are actually pretty well protected here in the Atlantic, but um, the South Atlantic, they, they occur off Australia and, um, and I think in the parts of the Indian Ocean. And a lot of those countries, they don't have regulations like they do here. So they're just kind of caught and landed. And yeah, some of the parts, the meat is often eaten locally, but the fins for most sharks that are caught often go to Asia for shark fin soup. Yeah. So that that includes sand tigers um, when they're caught in those countries that sort of catch them um, and don't have any regulations for them. Sad. Sad. But it it is. But if that was... If that were to happen here in the United States, it would be very illegal. Um, mm-hmm. So if somebody was caught landing a sand tiger shark and trying to sell their fins, there's huge fines and penalties, um, even jail time for things like that. So it's, yeah. we have really strict re- regulations to protect them here. Yeah. Well, at least at least we're strict about it so they don't go extinct. Right. That's, that's the goal. We don't want any of them to go extinct for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. What does a sand tiger shark need to survive? What do they need to survive? So they're very um, coastal species for the most part. And so they need they need protection. They need sort of habitat. Mm-hmm. They, they like either being close to shore or off or on structure like like shipwrecks offshore. And so they need they generally like to hang out in places where they have like structure like shallow bottom or like big reefs and, and uh, shipwrecks that they can hang out on. And they, they hang out on those places because there's usually a lot of food. And so they really like to eat schooling fish and certain types of bottom fish. Yeah. And those wrecks in those areas near shore and even in estuaries like Delaware Bay, um, inside Great South Bay and Shinnecock Bay even, um, yeah. they get in there sometimes and there's lots of fish. There's lots of things they can eat off the bottom like flounder and sea robins and crabs. Um, and, but they also eat a lot of things like like bunker um, and other kinds of schooling fish. And so um, it's really about the habitat and, uh, you know, having it in the right kind of temperature range. They're more of a temperate kind of shark. So they get, you know, they kind of, they're not tropical like a bull shark or a lemon shark. They're a little more temperate like a dusky shark or a sandbar shark. And so they, they have a certain temperature range that they like to hang out in. And as long as they can find that structure, that habitat, and the food that they like to eat, then that's a that's a place where they can hang out and it can really be, um, you know, productive for them. Um, can they live in caves? Because that's sort of like a structure. Yeah, no, I've seen that. I think it's in off of Africa. There's some places where these these really cool sort of undersea caves and arches and stuff, and there's sand tiger sharks like to hang out around those sort of like undersea, yeah, like mountain sea mounts and caves and things like that. Cool. Thank you. 
What can we do to help? It's a great question. Um, I think, like I mentioned, how in the U.S. Uh, the sharks are very well protected. One great thing to do is to make sure you're you're buying sustainable seafood, and that means your fisheries and your seafood is coming from, um, you know, from fisheries that that don't catch, don't necessarily catch a lot of sharks, or if they catch sharks, they're they're releasing them like they're supposed to. So I say, you know, buy U.S. caught seafood because it's well regulated and well protected. Um, that's one thing. So just make sure your seafood is coming from places that are sustainable. Like if you bought your, um, if you were buying some fish from another country, that fishery might not have any regulations. They might catch and kill and sell sharks. Um, yeah. It's hard to know sometimes. So um, it's just general good advice if you like eating seafood to buy U.S. caught seafood. Um, another thing you do is to um, you know, reduce your impact in general on the ocean. Just, you know, try to reduce pollution. Um, do what you can to clean up beaches. Don't throw trash around, you know, reduce, trying to reduce plastic impacts in the environment. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's about water quality and, and, and trying to minimize pollution going into the ocean so that the sharks have a healthy habitat. You know, places like Shinnecock Bay, Great South Bay on Long Island, they have a lot of they can have a lot of problems with nutrients and pollution flowing into those bays. So anything we can do to make the water cleaner just makes better habitat for the sharks, including those sand tiger sharks. Um, and I know I think uh, balloons is a big thing for New York now too. Oh, you yeah. know, it's one simple thing to do is don't let those balloons loose after a big, uh, you know, Fourth of July party or graduation party. Yeah. Um, you know, pop the balloons and throw them in the trash. Don't cut them loose because they end up landing in the ocean, and uh, you know they could they could tangle kinds of all kinds of fish. Things yeah. could eat them and get sick and die. So sea turtles think know, they're just, uh, sea turtles think they're jellyfish sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, so making sure your balloons go to the trash can and not in the ocean is a good thing. Yeah. Um, I think there's supposed to be a ban of Fort Southampton Township um, to ban balloons altogether, but um, it's still like they're still talking about it and debating about it. Wow, uh, that's great. Yeah, as long you know, it's okay for if people have balloons. Um, in, in my opinion, just just don't dump them in the ocean or don't cut them loose. You yeah. know, because they just end up pollute, they just end up polluting the environment. So if you have balloons, just gotta be responsible with them and put them in the trash. Even in the trash, though, it can have harmful effects on the environment. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, they're it's plastic and it'll end up in a landfill or something somewhere. Yeah. So, can you give a short description of the work of the South Fork Natural History Museum's shark research team is doing, and how can this help the sand tiger shark? Uh, it's a great question. So, the South Fork Natural History Museum has been a really great collaborator and partner of mine. Um, and I work closely with Greg Metzger, who's the chief field coordinator for the shark team and Frank Covetto, who's the, who's the director. Yeah, and, I know. Uh, we all, we all went to Long Island university together. Um, and so it's been really fun to work together with them. So we are trying to study a variety of sharks on Long Island, mostly the juvenile white sharks in the nursery area there. Cause we want to, um, we want to study not just where and when they are, but also how they're using the South Shore of Long Island, how they use New York waters. Um, you know, what temperatures do they like? What kind of water depths do they hang out in? How do the different shark species on Long Island 
how do they share the habitat and what habitats are really important for um, specific species so we can better um, conserve them and give advice to to uh, state and federal um, managers and conservationists. Um, we, we're also concerned about climate change. The, yeah. the mid-Atlantic part of the United States is warming up very rapidly. And there's already some evidence that a lot of fish species are kind of shifting north as the waters warm up. And so we'd like to collect data that can help us understand what how climate change might actually impact New York's shark species. Because um, of things like that white shark nursery area that we have, yeah, if that gets too warm, those white sharks are going to leave and go somewhere else. And they could be exposed to, other, um, to fisheries, um, to other larger sharks. It could be basically less suitable habitat for them um, where it could increase their mortality and affect their, you know, the survival of the, the population. So it's all those things. And South Fork Natural History Museum has just been a really um, helpful partner and in, in getting us supplies and helping support the research and, and um, you know, supporting the, the work on the boats that we do and buying some of the tags. Um, and so it's a, it's a really great partnership because we're doing some really, um, I think, valuable research that'll help conserve shark populations in New York and really help us understand, um, you know, how they use New York waters. Cool. cool. What are some myths about sharks that aren't true? Some myths about sharks. Um, there's so many. Um, one is that they're mindless man-eaters, you know, that's the big one. Uh, Jaws was fiction. It wasn't, it wasn't based on reality. So sharks aren't out there to eat people. Um, they're not interested in people. There's lots and lots of sharks in the ocean, um, even near popular beaches, but they generally leave people alone. They're not interested in people. They eat fish. And, um, on those unfortunate occasions where they do bite someone, it's usually a mistake. They, they mistake a hand or a foot for fish. So that's a big one. Sharks aren't out there to hurt people. They're not interested in people. Um, um, I think another common problem, I don't know if it's really a myth, but it's just that people tend to group sharks um, for any number of purposes. So saying like all sharks are dangerous or all sharks are endangered or um, I don't know, all sharks are this or that. Yeah. There's there's over five there's over five hundred species of sharks around the world, right? And yeah. so some are more dangerous than others, some are bigger than others. Most you know, most sharks in the ocean are actually less than three feet long. Wow. There's most of the species of sharks out there are really small sharks. Um so there, there's just so many different species out there, different populations. Some are overfished, some aren't, uh some are endangered, some aren't. And so there's, I, I feel like people try to group sharks or lump sharks together for a lot of things. When you really sometimes need to think about all the different species, like, you know, we can't, we can't go out and necessarily save all the sharks, not all the sharks need to be saved, but there's a few, maybe like the sand tiger that really needs some attention because we know it, it you know, its populations were impacted and, and overfished. So, um, you know, so we can focus on those species that really need the help and not just kind of make blanket statements about all sharks. Um, so those are a couple, for me, those are a couple of big myths that I deal with all the time is that they're dangerous and that they're all kind of lumped together Yeah. <laughs> and that all, all 500 shark species are kind of the same when they're really not, they're all very different. Yeah. Um, what other sharks are, uh, endangered or threatened? Um, 
In the U.S. The, that we have listed under the Endangered Species Act, the probably the most endangered, uh, like sort of global shark is the oceanic white tip shark. Um, that that is listed as threatened, and uh, they've they've definitely experienced big population declines. You know, they're a tropical shark. They have really big fins, and so they were targeted by a lot of international fisheries. Um, and um, in their, uh, you know, so their fins were were sent overseas. Uh, so oceanic white tip sharks, the the sawfish was it, which is actually a type of ray. It's related to stingrays, um, you know. But but the sawfish is actually endangered, and they're basically only found in Florida now. Um, they used to range all the way up the coast, um, but now they're pretty much only found in South Florida. Um, so if you're interested in you know real a real endangered species that's that's found in the U.S., you should should read up about sawfish. Yeah. Um, small tooth sawfish. Uh, which is really, really fascinating animal. Really wasn't much known about them, um, but they were, um, people used to cut their noses off. They'd keep the saw. It's almost like a swordfish bill with, with teeth sticking out of it. Yeah, I think I know it. Yeah, so you've seen sawfish. So uh, that was actually the first, the sawfish was actually the first marine fish to be listed on the, the Endangered Species Act. Um, so that's, you know, it's kind of a... Um, it was kind of a big moment when that when the sawfish was listed. So that's one that I try to draw people's attention to, because not a lot of people know about sawfish, and they're really fascinating animals, and they're really one of the most endangered um, shark type species we have in in the United States. Cool. Um, my favorite shark is the megalodon, or was, and um, there's there's another shark about the same time as the megalodon uh, that. Um, it I don't I forget the name, but it was like it was like a shark, except the bottom teeth was um it was almost like a like a rotating saw. It had uh, somehow it moved it so it would draw in the fish through that, and then it would like chop it up and then digest it. Um, it's probably one of the most yeah, and I've shows. seen those fossils. It's like a circle. It's yeah. like their teeth were like in a circle, right? Like a circular saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ones. Think of. I think it was called a whirltooth shark. Whirltooth shark. Yeah, that's. I, I forget the scientific name, but I think that's what they called it. Very yeah. weird, very yeah. weird teeth for sure. Yeah. Well, um, do you have any favorite sharks? I, I love the great white shark. I always have. Um, it's uh, they're sort of they they become iconic. They're like movie stars. Yeah. Of sharks, you know, they're on every Shark Week episode. They're in all the movies, um, but. When I when I actually saw them in the wild for the first time, I was just so impressed by how big they are, um, sort of how confident they are. They're, um, you know, just they're just really impressive predators, and yeah. it's like they know it. It's like they have an attitude where they know that they're big and bad, and yeah. that nothing can hurt them. <laughs> and it's just uh, it's just a really cool thing to be close to a big animal like that, um, but to still feel safe. You know, we've had them. You know, sixteen foot shark swim right next to the boat. We can pat it on the back when it swam by. Wow! Um, it's, it's not trying to eat the boat or jump in the boat or anything. It's just cruising around, checking us out. Um, when they swim next to the boat, they actually kind of turn on their side, yeah. and they look at you. You wow. can see their eye actually moving around, and they're actually looking at you and trying to size you up. And it's really kind of neat to be so close to a big predator like a like a white shark and have them just checking you out so yeah. I've, that's the white shark's always been my favorite just because they seem so big and, and smart yeah um, and, and, and curious sometimes too cool thank you
Sure. Thank you, Dr. Toby Curtis. I look forward to seeing you when you come to the East End in August. I'm also looking forward to the Shark Research Team's Fieldwork Update panel discussion. For more information or to attend this event, please visit SOFO.org. Thanks again. Our next guest is April Gornick. Welcome to the podcast, April. Can I have a short bio, please? Yeah, um, I'm, I was born in Cleveland in 1953, and I went to the Cleveland Institute of Art and then the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design because I'm an artist, and that's how I got my training. I moved to New York City in 1978 and um, gradually um, got a gallery and made my way in the art world, having shows, just as people always do in galleries, Edward Thorpe Gallery, Denise Gallery. Now I'm with Miles McHenry Gallery, and that's my that's my regular real life. <laughs> what is your motivation for saving sharks? Well, I've always loved animals. Animals have always been a passion of mine. Even when I was really little, I I spent inordinate amount of times looking through picture books of animals and reading about them and. Um, Sharks were no exception, large, you know, um, charismatic megafauna and other predators were always of interest to me. Um, so when I moved out here, um, by the time I was out moving out, living out here um, full time, which was in 2004, I, of course, have carried that with me all my life. And I didn't know um, until I heard about it in 2009, that there were shark tournaments going on here. And mm. of course, most, most thinking, curious, um, caring people in the world knew that shark populations were beginning to be in decline because of, um, primarily because of the, the finning of sharks by the Chinese for shark fin soup, which is kind of another topic, but not really. And at that time, I thought um, something should be done. I found out that there was going to be a protest at Star Island, which held and still holds the biggest shark tournament. It was organized by the Humane Society of the United States. Is that in Florida? No, that's the one in Montauk. No, oh. it's in Montauk, New York, and it's um, it's you know right there in my backyard in yeah. our backyard. So I thought this, this must not be, this is horrible. And I made a sign and I went out there and I stood with the other tiny little group of protesters and got some applause and got a really lot of expletives and, you know, raised mm. little fingers at me yeah. um, with the other people. And then I went home and thought, wow, was that a waste of time? Because it was, it was completely a waste of time. It was like not, there was no interaction with people. There was, you know, a tiny bit of coverage in the paper, but I felt like it was a sad excuse for an intervention in something that I thought yeah. needed intervention. So then I went home and wrote an op-ed or a letter to the editor, excuse yeah. me, to the East Hampton Star. And after that was published, I was contacted by a guy named Rav Friedel, mm -hmm. who applauded my effort yeah and but I, I said to him right away this isn't enough something else needs to happen and he agreed with me he's an animal lover an animal activist himself so that sort of propelled me into um greater action and more detailed action wow that's really cool i actually ended up 
splitting off. I, I met some nice people at the Humane Society at the HSUS, but um, I had very profound disagreements with their methodologies because they were there to oppose, I guess you could call it local culture. Yeah. I mean, the, the culture of men going out and killing sharks was so unfortunately established because of Jaws and everything. We watched Jaws like last night. Did you? Yeah. How'd you like it? How'd you like it for the, what time, how many times have you seen it? Oh, just, that was my first time. Oh, what did you think of it? It wasn't, I mean, it didn't really scare me out of the water because it was so unrealistic. It's very unrealistic, but it it kept a huge amount of people from going in the water when it came out. Mm -hmm. And then it solidified, uh, you know, what's referred to as a primal fear of right sharks in people and and unfortunately you know men men in our society have been going through an awful lot of of reckoning lately mm-hmm. without a whole lot of help and support and so to have have stepped on a piece of their macho reinforcement as we the protesters were of course was entirely ineffective because there was no communication right with them. So that's anyway, getting back to the HSUS, that's why I split off from it mm. um, and decided to do other things. Do you want me to talk more in detail about the research and stuff? Um, not too much. Just like, you know, go into like how it all, you know, happened. Yeah. Well, anyway, so in an effort to figure out some alternative to just standing there with a sign, I ended up doing a tremendous amount. I mean, thank God for Google at that time. I ended up doing a tremendous amount of of reading and research and talking to Rav Friedel, who was with the Concerned Citizens of Montauk, very smart guy. And um, especially, I was especially interested in um, um, Peter Benchley's model for Jaws, um, was this guy named Help. Oh, darn. Shoot. Maybe, can you stop this for a second and I'll Google it? Sure. We had to take a short break, but now we're back. <laughs> so um, I was very interested in learning about the history of the mm-hmm. shark tournaments, et cetera. And of course, this brought up Frank Mundus, who mm-hmm. was the model of the shark killing, um, to some people, hero in Jaws. Yes. So reading about Frank Mundus, I expected to learn about the shark tournaments. But what I encountered was the fact that the older Frank Mundus got, the more he was sickened by what he'd done all his life and became a real shark activist. And one of his principal recommendations was the idea to use circle hooks rather than J hooks because um, they have a very, very different effect. Yeah. And um, a a circle hook can do tremendous damage to a shark um, if it's swallowed. I mean, the whole idea is to hook it. So the the shape of it, if you just imagine the letter J, mm-hmm. is you know kind of obvious, but a shark that's been um, gutted by a hook is mm-hmm. not going to survive when it's let go. And there's, although the um, NOAA and the National Marine Fisheries Service out here on the East Coast would closely observe these shark tournaments and make sure that there was a certain limited amount of catch, et cetera, et cetera, and that. Um, two small sharks were not brought in, there was no way of knowing if a shark had been hooked by a J hook and then was let go if it was going to survive. Mm. A circle hook is a much better idea because the circular shape of it 
um, means that when the shark swallows it deep, as, and sharks, especially large sharks, will gulp their prey. So if they swallow a circle hook, it will roll around in their stomach and can be and can be withdrawn when when the shark is released. And it's also important to have in line so that the so that the shape of the circle um, doesn't doesn't alter at the barb. In other mm. words, it doesn't stick out a little bit. It should be in line with the general profile of the hook. Yeah, so it doesn't go so yeah like like stick out yeah so it doesn't it doesn't do a little broke mm -hmm. move there at the end and then also it should be non-stainless so you mm -hmm. want the hook to be able to corrode so a circle hook that's non-stainless and that's in line um will actually dissolve in a shark's gut eventually and that's cool. yeah and it'll it'll be absolutely harmless for it so then we got the idea, Rav and I, I said, well, anyway, I ended up packing the first summer I packed over 10,000 hooks um, and gave them to fishermen. I like, and in fact, I bought the wrong size. This is just a, a funny little, you know, beginner's mistake. Um, they were slightly too small for the sharks that these guys were going for, but we packed up tremendous amount of these circle hooks and I put them in um, wax paper bags mm -hmm. so that we didn't have plastic in the ocean and, uh, you know, gave them away to like all these guys and all the tournaments out there, including there was a Montauk Marine Basin that had a shark tournament later than Star Island. Star Island, it took some doing to convince Star Island to accept them. Why? Like what's... They just, they just thought we were being buttons people, you know, like yeah. they just didn't want people butting into their, their so-called culture, their, yeah. their lifestyle or bossing them around. And we met this one guy who was like the grand prize winner year after year, after year, after year, after year, like outside when we were in Montauk, mm -hmm. like trying to talk to people about this in his truck. And he just about took our heads off. I mean, he was like, he was so angry that anybody would be in any way, shape or form interfering. And we were like, these work better, I swear, because we knew about them from um, um, bill fishing on the East Coast. There, there are southern states that have used circle hooks now for a while. And the, the circle hooks have been proven to be actually more effective. They actually catch fish better. Mm -hmm. And they were a great success. So we just wanted the guys to try them. We even gave some to this guy, Rick James, who runs the Oak Bluffs um, Shark Tournament, which was a really super vicious big tournament up in Martha's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's where Jaws is found. Yeah. Yep. And he's out of Boston. And I had, he liked to talk. I would call him up and he would yell at me and I'd yell at him. <laughs> that was fun. So it was like, a, it was a long time. So it was a few, it was a couple of years of like packing up circle hooks and yeah trying to get people to accept them. I mean, I remember like sending up the box to Rick James for his tournament and it weighed like a million pounds and it cost a zillion dollars to send it up there, but I'm really stubborn. So yeah. that's what happened. Wait, his name was Rick James, like the singer? Yeah, I think I've got the name right. I'll check it out. But anyway, he, he actually perished in a duck hunting accident um, a few years ago. So Anyway, I can't continue that conversation. I don't know. I know that the Star Island tournament um, this year is 
suspended because of COVID they, and they haven't resumed it. I guess they probably don't have enough time to prepare. Um, one interesting thing that I think people should know is that one of our arguments was that people think like Star Island advertises the fact that it offers a huge amount of money. It's the most lucrative tournament to enter according mm -hmm. to them and that's their bragging rights. But actually from what from what everybody knows, um, it's the it's what they call the Calcutta betting that really makes. Do you know about Calcutta betting? No. So Calcutta betting is the side betting that everybody does with each other on all the different boats. Oh, so who's going to win? Yeah. So that was that was a really interesting um, thing to find out because we figured that even if we changed, we asked for the tournaments to be changed to no kill tournaments. Mm -hmm. Um, people could still make the same amount of money if they engaged in the side yeah. betting. But also that didn't go over well, and I'm not sure why. Maybe it's, I mean, it could have been the same tournament fees, et cetera, but we just couldn't budge anybody on that. So anyway, the, the, so the next thing that happened is that after like kind of, um, you know, Rav and I, Rav worked so hard on this. I mean, he helped me do hooks and he, um, he made a lot of contacts, really yeah. critical contacts. I can't praise him enough and honor him enough for the work that he did. But um, one of the things that one of the things that happened was that he had been in contact with this guy named Carl Derenberg, who actually had the first shark tournament out there. He was like the progenitor of them after yeah. Jaws at Montauk Marine Basin, and Carl had had a change of heart much like Frank Mundus, mm -hmm. he suddenly thought, why am I doing this? This is terrible. And so he told us, if you can get a no-kill satellite tag shark tournament together, I'll host it for you. So we went into hyperdrive and we called um, Bob Huter down in Florida, mm -hmm. who was you know, a wonderful guy, and contacted um, all these different people who were working with and MFS and um, National Marine, Marine Fisheries Services and and others and tried to get people to help us make the tournament interesting for people. Yeah. And the most interesting people ended up being the OSEARCH people. So OSEARCH does satellite shark tagging and tracking. Yeah. And we figured this would have a wonderful educational component because the guys who caught the sharks, could name them whatever they wanted. Oh. And then they could, they and their families or their kids in school could follow the shark in a live tracking. I mean, sharks will sharks will go deep for a while and then come up in different areas. And sometimes yeah. the, the they get lost or, sadly, most of the sharks that were tagged have been killed, which is pretty upsetting. Why? Like, because a tag doesn't protect them. It, and some of the satellite tags are very expensive, but most of the sharks that were that were caught in that original tournament and tagged were um, lost and presumed killed, and some of them were definitely killed. In other tournaments, some of them by fishermen. Oh, so just like I mean, for sharks, sport? Yeah, no, like for finning and things like oh. that. I mean, the the um, the extent of shark movement can be really vast. Yeah. Some sharks have a, a more um, limited uh, 
range and some of them go very, very far. So, yeah, like I'm sure you heard about Mary Lou, the great white shark that people were tracking that came near um, Nantucket or Boston recently, a few years ago. She caused a big stink. She's a great white. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, and again, it's like endlessly interesting to learn about sharks and endlessly frustrating to realize how little we know about them yeah. and, and take them for granted and whatnot. But that's that's pretty much the story. Oh, no, actually, there was so one amazing thing happened from all of mm -hmm. this effort, which is that in the process of talking about this, I had this tremendous bee in my bonnet about we should get legislation passed. Because, you know, when you have a problem, you really want your elected officials to represent it mm -hmm. and deal with it and yeah. help you deal with it. So Rav and I went to um, Fred Thiel our wonderful first assemblyman for Suffolk and, and the mm -hmm. East End. And we sat down and talked to him at length. And he actually managed to introduce and pass a bill that mandates the use of circle hooks in shark tournaments. Ah. Yeah. So that's of all the things that happened, that's the thing that I'm most proud of being involved with because it was, it was actually not a, a like in perpetuity, but he managed to get it extended. And I believe now it's permanent law. And especially because it became an easier and easier sell for people mm -hmm. who would otherwise be objecting to it because it's, um, they are, circle hooks really are really effective ways of fishing. They work beautifully. Um, if they're gonna kill the sharks anyway though, like, why use them if they're going to kill the sharks anyway? Is the no-kill shark tournament still going on, or is it just one one time? Well, we first of all, in the no-kill tournaments, we wanted to prove that the circle hooks worked, mm -hmm. and all the fishermen liked them enormously, yeah. which was good PR for us. And then um, the but the main idea of using circle hooks is the bycatch. So sharks that are brought in by boat that are too small to be accepted for tournament standards. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to tell with the fish on a line how big it is. Like you really yeah. need to get it near the side of the boat to know. So when the when the line is released, because you see that it's a little too small or you're not going to bother or yeah. you're pretty sure. And then also there are marine fisheries people around that circulate that check out sharks that you have too, if you've got a really huge one. To give you to help give you an estimate. I mean, this is obviously not a perfect method. It's hard to make sure that that they're going to be in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. And, but at least with circle hooks, when the line is cut, the shark has a good chance of survival. Right. Otherwise, you know, you, it's really a crapshoot at mm -hmm. best. So that's why that's why circle hooks should just be used generally. Cool. Thank you. Sure. How does your artwork reflect what we have been talking about? Um, the art that that art that I make, mm -hmm. you know, is all landscapes. Yeah, and I've been doing that since the light went on, and that was around nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight. No, seventy eight. Like I suddenly kind of saw something that I really wanted to paint. Mm -hmm. I was like desperate to paint it, and. Um, I really wasn't thinking about landscapes. It was just this image that popped into my head and then I looked at it and I thought, oh, I've painted a landscape, which was like not the thing that you wanted to be doing at the time. The thing that you wanted to be doing at the time was conceptual art and 
art that was based on, you know, structuralist theory and stuff like that, which is a French intellectual yeah. blah, 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 anyway. So, and then um, needing to make images um, like that, I started to have these amazing dreams. I had, I just dreamed the most incredible dreams for several years. And I would try to paint from the dreams. Dream storms. Dream storms. Yeah, you'd call them that. And yeah, they were. And it was kind of like, I felt like I was in my own sort of personal brainstorm too. Yeah. Um, coming up with these, these images and they seemed important and I really wasn't sure why. And I just kept making them because I loved painting light and I loved painting space. Mm -hmm. And I loved painting moments where you weren't sure if a storm was approaching or leaving. I loved that condition. Mm -hmm. It felt like truth itself to me. Yeah. That you would, you would look at something that had, that embodied a certain kind of complexity. Real, realistic. Realistic, but not, but not just a picture of something, something that had built into it a certain possible question or meditative quality or contemplative quality. Yeah. And honestly, like when people would say like, are you an environmentalist? Or at that time people would go, are you interested in ecology? Like that's the way people always talked about what we're talking about now. And I'd say, well, really this is more about me, my interior state, my kind of my spiritual makeup somehow. Yeah. I couldn't really, I couldn't really honestly say that I was painting these paintings to make people think about the environment because it was a personal self-expression. Yeah. But not disinterested in the environment. It just wasn't the main topic. But of course, as things have degraded enormously mm -hmm. over my lifetime as an artist, mm -hmm. I now, if somebody looks at my work and thinks about the environment and thinks that it's beautiful and needs to be saved, I'm thrilled. You know, I'm like, yeah. yep, that's what it's about. <laughs> that's fine with me. Yeah. So, and it, but it's a very, very, very long engagement with the subject matter that's never really um, lost its importance and its power to me. And um, if I only had a little more time, yay, that would be great. Right yeah. now I'm so like involved in so many activist things right now that it's taking up too much time, but certainly I don't regret what I've done, you know, with packing up circle hooks or trying to yeah. work on Sag Harbor and keep it from being overdeveloped and preserving old buildings and things like that, like the church and the cinema. So, um, but at the, at the heart of me is definitely my art. Is there anything else you would like to add? Um, not really. I hope that people will take an interest in, in sharks and in preservation. And I think that there's so many areas of need right now in terms of what's outside of us. And I, I fear that people are kind of got their noses too far into their phones and yeah i mean i do too everybody does it's a great device but i hope that people will like literally like get into something that's outside of themselves because we're all bigger than we realize and that's it's a way of expanding and it's a way of like enormous enrichment for people and and slowing down a little bit and healing and mm. 
we definitely need to do that for each other and and obviously for the planet. Yeah. So people are so busy these days. People are so busy and they're so people centric too now that we've, you know, overpopulated everything too. And I, I get that people want to put people first, but um, as a, as hopefully as adult human beings, we learn to share. And I don't think that there's enough emphasis on sharing. Yeah. That That is like a really simple principle, but um, definitely is something that we have to learn to do. And that's the opposite of greed. So fingers crossed for the future. Yeah. Good luck, Finny. Thank you. <laughs> it's on your shoulders. You're now right. how you feel. Yeah, right. No pressure. <laughs> <Finny> alone. <laughs> well, thanks for coming. Well, I want to thank you for being the environmentalist that you are thank and you. the curious, questioning person you are. I thank think you. you're a tribute to your age group. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to The Endangered. Special thanks to Dr. Toby Curtis and April Gornick. Thank you both. Now here's a message for our listeners listening. See you next time on The Endangered. Thank you.